Welcome to Legacy Sport Live, stories of the people who are shaping the conversation at the intersection of sport, business and purpose. I'm Neil Duffy, co-author of our new book, Legacy Sport, how to win at the business of sport in the age of social good. Today I talk to Tim Shriver, chairman of the Special Olympics. Tim's story about the Special Olympics, how it came about, and how it shifts mindsets and behaviours towards those with disabilities is truly inspirational and speaks volumes about the potential for sport to deliver positive social impact. So very honoured to have um, the chairman of an organization with us today, Tim Shriver from Special Olympics. Um, you know, when I think of a quintessential purpose-led sports property, um, Special Olympics is something that comes to mind, Tim. So thank, thank you for sharing your time with us today. Really appreciate it. Um, Happy to be with you. I, I'd like to kind of take us right back to the beginning from, you know, where Special Olympics all started with your, with your mother's inspiration. And t- take us back to those early days, you know, when the idea the kernel of an idea first formed that maybe there was an opportunity to use sport uh, to address something that your mom cared really deeply about. Yeah. Well, um, I think the, the main uh, distinction about the founding of Special Olympics, it's somewhat different than many other sports organizations, not from all, but from many, uh, is that it, the, 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 the founding of Special Olympics was based on the desire to solve a problem, a social, cultural, political problem. Most sports organizations, I think, are up and running for many good reasons, fun reasons, joyful reasons, recreational reasons, physical reasons. And then sometimes they say, well, let's figure out what problem we're solving. <laughs> uh, our, our sequence was the opposite. We had a problem or the world had a problem and sport was the solution. It wasn't the other way around. The problem was that um, a whole... Uh, enormous number, hundreds of millions of people around the world had been locked out, had been closed out, had been treated as subhuman. Uh, And uh, there were a small handful of mothers, mostly mothers, sisters, brothers, advocates, who in the early part of the 20th, up and through the middle, all the way through the end of the 20th century, began to try to rebel against the structure, rebel against institutionalization, the medicalization of disability, the isolation of children, uh, the uh, denial of health care, of education, of employment, of community living. I mean, this was a massive problem that almost no one saw. Uh, and so my mother, along with many others, started working uh, every way she could. She visited with doctors and asked them to do research. She visited with politicians and asked them to fund programs. She visited with educators and asked them for guidance. She uh, met with employers and asked them for help. Most of those efforts uh, were frustrated uh, and frustrating for her. And at a certain point, I think she recognized uh, that it, even if none of those other people would do anything, uh, that she would uh, look to sport as maybe yet still another solution that might bypass all that expert community and engage average human beings in trying to end the isolation. And so these summer camps that started in the 60s and then continued up into 1968 when the first Special Olympics Games were held uh, in Chicago, 
uh, this was an effort to use sport to end the distance and separation and misunderstanding and horrifying oppression that had separated people with intellectual disabilities, even from their own families for centuries. Uh, her vision was maybe if we play together, we can begin to change the country, change the world. So it started off as, as small gatherings. And, and I love the way that you position that, that you, that you used sport to solve a problem rather than trying to retrofit um, uh, a purpose for uh, some kind of sporting activity. So, so when it first started out, Tim, what, what was the, I mean, the very first gathering, what, what did it look like? Well, I think the first, uh, I mean, uh, not surprising, well, maybe surprisingly, very much like the events look like today. So my mother's first efforts were uh, sort of experimental in summer camps, sports at summer camps. And what did she do? Uh, she made it recreational and sporting. She brought in uh, great athletes to do coaching. She brought in high school uh, kids and college kids to volunteer and play uh, in teams with people with intellectual disabilities. Uh, she invited mothers to send their children. Um, and she uh, challenged uh, big shots, if you will, uh, political figures and celebrities to come see. Now, that's 1962-63, children coming from institutions, children coming on yellow school buses, children coming from places that are, uh, thank God, uh, consigned to history now. Horrific places, actually, but they came there to uh, my mother's house, my house as a little boy, which was a, a farm in suburban Maryland with a big uh, sprawling field. And uh, she got people to bring out ponies and she got people to come build obstacle courses and kickballs and art teachers. And there we, we started practicing uh, the very core method that continues in Special Olympics today, which is trying to close the distance that separates us from one another by playing sports, training, getting physically fit, competing, learning and developing a skill, seeing how good you are, uh, meeting and joining with a teammate. The very simple dimensions of sport are extraordinarily powerful in ending this stigmatizing and uh, terrifying fear that we have of one another, in particular people with intellectual disabilities. Mm -hmm. So from those first summer camps, she expanded and invited park departments and recreation departments around the country to start small camps. And by 1968, she'd seen what these camps could do. More, I say more accurately, she'd seen what the campers could do, what people with Down syndrome or Williams or autism or other kinds of challenges. She saw what they could do. She saw them swim when people said they couldn't swim. She saw them compete when people said they couldn't compete. She saw their smiles. She saw their mothers come and uh, say how proud they were of their child, of their daughter, of their son. She saw the teenagers who were volunteering have their whole minds changed, their hearts changed, have their lives transformed by these simple gifts of sport. Uh, and so she said, "Let's see. actually, this isn't just sport. This is Olympic sport, and people must have laughed. I, I never heard that story, but they must have laughed. Oh, isn't that sweet? You're calling those people Olympic? Uh, you know, the, the, the great oath of the Olympics, Cetius, Altius, Fortius, for people in institutions, for people who are uh, outcasts of society, for people who are so broken that doctors tell us they're hopeless, they're Olympic. And this was the greatest, in my view, audacious brand challenge of the 20th century, to take the world's most forgotten people and attach them to the brand of the world's most aspirational people. And from that moment, I think 
no one can look at the Special Olympics athlete without at some level wondering uh, whether they've always, whether we've always had it wrong, right. uh, whether it isn't in fact they who are the world's greatest athletes. Overcome the biggest, much far bigger challenges at a personal level. Yeah, yeah. So, so fast forward to today, and I mean, we've just celebrated, um, was it your 50th, just a few years ago, yeah. your 50th anniversary with a, an amazing event in, in LA, correct? In, in LA, in Chicago, in Abu Dhabi, in Hyannisport, which are uh, in some ways our roots, um, uh, all over the world, in the Dominican Republic. Uh, we had events all over the world uh, in the, uh, uh, with, you know, we have 190 countries. Uh, those countries are filled with over a million volunteers. Those volunteers run over 100,000 games every year. Sure. Um, so together, uh, all of them, uh, helped to celebrate the uh, this uh, 50th milestone uh, with the movement now growing faster and in some ways I would say almost more urgently needed than ever. Right. And and it's, I mean, those 100,000 events, I didn't realize it was that many. So that's quite incredible. Um, but it's, it's, you know, in addition to those events, it's something that's become part and part of um, a, a whole sector of communities everyday life, hasn't it? It's in schools, it's in everything. It has. And, you know, you'll hear from people, uh, from our athletes, that this is the, the, the event is the thing they look forward to sometimes all month, sometimes all week, sometimes all uh, season, sometimes all year. Uh, uh, and, uh, but you also hear the same thing from, from people who have no disability. And this is the giant insight of this moment, that inclusive sport, uh, what we call unified sport, uh, both sides benefit equally from ending uh, this gap, this fear, this distance. Uh, those of us who don't aren't labeled with a disability, when we come to play on the same football team or the same volleyball team or run in a relay race together, all of a sudden we discover uh, uh, and can release the fears that have separated us from one another, from others. And, and similarly, the athletes themselves will say that uh, they've overcome this uh, enormous shame that they've been uh, thrust upon them and, and this isolation and this uh, fear of engagement. All of a sudden, uh, they feel that uh, the power of developing a skill, proving to them what they can do. So, you know, it looks, as I say to people, it looks like a swimming race or a track meet, but don't be deceived. Uh, this is a classroom of the transformation of the human spirit, and it is uh, why we refer to this generation of our work as the inclusion revolution. This is the big issue of our time, I think. I don't want to overstate it, but I really do believe that fear of difference is the world's most dangerous attitude of mass destruction. And um, healing that fear, overcoming that fear is our common work. And I don't think anyone does it better than the athletes of Special Olympics. And so I see them as the teachers, the 21st century hungers, for and needs more than ever. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree with you more. Just for, for those that are not familiar with the concept, just, just un unpack the concept of, of inclusiveness or inclusive games and inclusive schools. Yeah. How does that play out in practice? So our, our work now has uh, a great, our growing uh, programs, uh, include what we call Special Olympics Unified Sports. So on such a team, if you're playing football or soccer, depending on which language you use, you might have 11 players. Uh, six of them might have an intellectual disability. Five would not. Uh, if you are playing tennis, you're playing doubles. One member of the doubles team has an intellectual disability. The other doesn't. 
uh, and you go down the line. If you're running a relay race, if you're playing golf, uh, we're bringing uh, people with and without intellectual disabilities into the games together. So we see this particularly in schools, uh, just booming. Schools and sports clubs in Europe uh, for teenagers and, and even a little bit younger and certainly older. Uh, why not have as many schools do a boys basketball team and a girls basketball team and a Special Olympics Unified Sports basketball team representing your high school? Why not see it as the standard expectation, not the exception, but the standard expectation that a school or a club would be represented not just by the traditional elite athlete, but by the Special Olympics athlete too, performing in his her, or her own unified uh, sports uh, uh, together with his or her non-disabled peers. So this is a way, you know, you don't have to, you, you don't need a chalkboard to teach inclusion. Uh, you don't even need a book. Uh, those things help, don't get me wrong. It helps to learn empathy and perspective taking and the history of, of discrimination and so on. But Sometimes all you need is the smile you see after someone shoots a, a basket uh, from the foul line and drains it with nothing but net. And everyone looks around and uh, the athlete who just nailed that basket is a young uh, man or woman with Down syndrome and turns and charges up the court with his or her arms raised. And uh, you see his mom or dad or brother or sister, or the whole school cheering for him. I, you know, you, you've already learned the lesson, I think 99% of human beings, uh, when they experience that, particularly if they're on the court, have uh, come to see that common humanity is our most powerful defining feature as a species and that uh, strengthening it is uh, our greatest joy. Right. Um, and I mean, just to build on that, on that concept of unification or togetherness, um, this, I mean, this movement has not grown on its own. It's taken a, a really broad-based stakeholder approach to how you've gone about building it, hasn't it? I mean, I'm amazed when I look at your your partnership page, how broad and deep and, and, and wide your partnerships go. Well, they do, but, you know, that's because uh, I like to explain to people that in business, you develop an intellectual property or a product and uh, you try to retain control of it. In our business, uh, with our intellectual property, our goal is to give it away. <laughs> So uh, we, we offer this platform, these uh, very simple rules of engagement, if you will, to the world. We, uh, and it's uh, championed uh, by the Lions Clubs and by Coca-Cola. It's championed by uh, educators uh, at the U.S. Department of Education and by uh, kindergarten children. It's championed by mothers and fathers, and it's championed by chief executives and uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, Ivy League professors. So uh, our goal is to is to point out that there really is uh, a great deal that the volunteer can do to change the world. I think this is one thing my mother was so smart about. You know, uh, whereas I think other folks maybe building an organization or a business would have said, "Well, we it's nice to have volunteers, but we've got to rely on paid staff." She was quite the opposite. She felt that people that volunteer, and after all, the roots of the word volunteer are to give from your heart, right? To do something not for compensation, but for your heart, um, uh, freely giving of yourself. That she felt that this was the energy that would most powerfully expand the message and the mission of the Special Olympics movement. If we trusted it to volunteers, 
And uh, while that can be tricky as a manager, uh, it can be tricky for control and, you know, uh, for uh, making sure that everything gets executed in the, in the tight timelines that we sometimes like. But it's not tricky at all if you're trying to do social change, because if you want social change, you want everybody involved. And that means, volu- that means you want the volunteer spirit to be at the center of it. You want people to be joining because they want to, not because they're getting paid to. And I know many, you know, obviously there's paid staff, but she trusted volunteers. And so if you find, uh, you go to Malawi, you'll find the volunteers of Malawi have shown up in some way or another to help Special Olympics Malawi. The same thing in Los Angeles or San Francisco, uh, different groups, different types, different ages, maybe different backgrounds, but wherever we go, we uh, kind of invite the world in. And uh, as I say to people often, I get to visit these places and get what I consider the front row seat uh, for the best in humanity. And it's a beautiful place from which to see the world. I'll tell you, it's, uh, I can bet when I can others bet. get discouraged about, uh, about humanity and about our capacity for good. Uh, I, I often just tell them, please find your local special Olympics event this weekend and just stop in even for 20 minutes. Uh, and your despair, I think will be eased. So Tim, um, that, that volunteer message it comes through loud, loud and clear, but how, what's your funding model? Because there, there are some expenses that have to be paid for that can't be paid for with volunteer time. No, of course, yes. Well, we raise money. I mean, all over the world, it's different. You know, in a place like China, we rely uh, intensively on our partnership with government institutions, with Department of Civil Affairs and Education, uh, Health, and so on. In a place uh, like the United States, we rely mostly on small and private contributions. We rely on police officers and law enforcement officials. We rely on, um, you know, average people who give twenty-five or fifty dollars a year uh, because they believe in what we're doing. We rely on corporate partners who can help us amplify our message and provide funding support. We we rely on the big sports leagues, the NBA and. Um, uh, leagues like that, the NHL have been great supporters with not just talent, but with financial resources, facilities, training, uh, celebrities. Um, it's a it's a broad formula for engagement. And yes, we do need to raise money, uh, but we like to remind people that for every dollar they give to something like Special Olympics, it's amplified four, six, eight, ten, sometimes twenty times by the labor of volunteers and the uh, commitment of um, other organizations which take a, take the mission on at no cost and uh, a little bit of staff investment can create uh, a whole tidal wave of uh, social and communal engagement. And that's our model. Right. And so within that, so just to, to focus on the corporate piece for a second. So, you know, one of the cornerstones of the sports business model is corporate sponsorship and this principle of exclusivity. Um, I mean, how, how do you, how does that play out in the special Olympics ecosystem? Do you, well, we do have, yeah, we have exclusive sponsors in categories and uh, by geographies and for events, for sure. Uh, but our sponsors tend to come to us with a slightly different ask. You know, they're not getting the same number of eyeballs at the Special Olympics Games, no matter how big they are, as they'd get for the World Cup or the Olympic Games or the finals of Wimbledon or the, you know, the World Series, the Super Bowl. So they come to us with a slightly different lens. They're looking to us. Uh, to help their people, largely their employees, their, uh, their, their line folks get involved in something that gives them a sense of purpose and re- connects their companies and their brands to something with a deep sense of purpose. They're relying on us 
uh, to bring our message into their workplaces. A lot of our sponsors now are asking us to help them hire people with intellectual disabilities. So it's not just a, a volunteer experience that employees go to, but it's, some, it's a mission and a purpose that's brought back to the workplace. Uh, they're relying on us to communicate to their customers what their values are and what their, so a lot of the work we do with our sponsors centers on, uh, you know, even point of sale kinds of act activations and, and, uh, and brand level activations because, you know, there's not a brand in the world today that isn't trying to figure out how to combine uh, their relentless and, and necessary focus on the financial bottom line with a comparable focus on the social and civic and cultural bottom line. And we can be very helpful to them in that regard. So it's a different kind of sponsorship, uh, uh, you know, uh, I would say value, but we're very proud of the likes of, you know, the Bank of America's of the world, the Toyota's of the world, the Coca-Cola's of the world that have been with us, uh, some of them for uh, decades, if not from the beginning in the case of Coca-Cola, you know, some of the greatest brands in the world, which have seen uh, over many, many decades and many, many renewal cycles. Um, they come back uh, because this this association, this partnership delivers value to them and uh, and they certainly deliver value to us. Right. So great, great examples of doing good while doing well type of philosophy. Exactly. Right. So, and, you know, that's really the only choice. I mean, I don't think uh, personally, uh, I don't think we make it as a planet if we don't figure out how to put those two together. That's not just a, an optional uh, feel good experience for, you know, a few companies on a Saturday afternoon. Uh, doing well and doing good is the new exigency of the 21st century. Right. Um, if we're going to save our planet, save our community, save our families, save our children, save our health care. I mean, right now, uh, we can see that. Uh, we no longer can afford businesses who see themselves as pure commercial entities with nothing but a financial bottom line and the rest of the interests of humanity be darned. Right. Uh, that doesn't work anymore. And do, do you think that applies to, to sport as well or is sport different and special? Or do you think the same rules or expectations? No, apply? I think the same rules <laughs> apply. I don't think we can build huge events and spend uh, money without regard to the, uh, the environmental issues, the social issues, the inclusivity issues, the participation issues, uh, uh, the credibility of sport hinges upon it uh, on honesty and truth telling the, <clears throat> the values of sport hinge on whether or not we're, allowing men and women, allowing people with and without disabilities into our sport communities. The economics of sport depends on whether or not we're speaking to a new generation in, in the language they demand of us environmentally, culturally, socially. Uh, and to me, uh, it all comes down to, at, at some level, not everything perhaps, but many things come down to the issue of are we being inclusive or not? I mean, too much of sport, I can say this without, uh, I hope, sounding uh, strident. Too much of sport is based on elite models. Uh, it doesn't make sense to tell children, which is what we do now at the age of 12 or 13, you're no good, stop playing. Most kids stop playing sport at that age. Uh, boys a little older, girls a little younger. Why? Because someone comes up to them and tells them they're not good enough. Now, what kind of an organization, what kind of a philosophy, what kind of a movement uh, has as one of its organizing principles the elimination of 80 or 90 or 95 percent of the people who want to participate as a goal. Uh, that's crazy, but that's actually what happens. Hmm. Uh, and it's crazy. It's absolutely 
<laughs> counterproductive and, um, and, and, in my view, very misguided. So we have to turn some of these paradigms on their head. You're hundred percent right. It's um, it's uh, I, I was chatting chatting on another interview to Dean Carmen, who started this thing called First. I don't know if you're familiar with him. Yeah, but, you know, he's seen, know. Yeah. he's seen the you know the beauty of sport as a business model or as a platform rather to engage kids around STEM. So he's providing yeah. an outlet for kids to carry on, and he makes the point the same. You know, he, he sees um, what he's doing through sport as a way of providing every single kid that participates the opportunity to become a professional which is really interesting um, because yeah. just like, and, but it's, it's, but you know, it's gotta be every kid. I mean, if you're a slow reader, no one tells you don't ever read, you know, and if you don't like uh, history books, no one says stop reading poetry. And it, it you know, <clears throat> but that's what we do in sport. Yep. Yep. Oh, you know, uh, your, your shots, no good. You're done with basketball, young man. Get, you know, move on, get out, get out. We got some good kids coming over here. I mean, it's it's if you if you stop and think about it, it's just nuts. Yeah, let alone the it's psychological. And most sports organizations, most I, I'm sorry to say, many 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 sport people think of themselves as talent scouts to find uh, the smallest number of elite, high performing uh, young people who can somehow make a reputation for a school or a university or a club at the elite level, yeah. and they either wittingly or unwittingly. Uh, turn their backs on everybody else. Yeah. And parents are putting and undue it, pressure it, on their kids because they see it as a way out for them. And so you've got yeah, all this. It just makes yeah. no sense at all. Yeah. So the whole system's ready for an, an, an overdue, I think. So, so, I, just, I to think so. just to change um, gears a little bit, Tim. So as you look back over the last 50 odd years of what you've been doing, um, I'm sure there must be one or two things at least that you would do differently or that you, you know, th wish you'd approached with a, through a different um, lens. Are, are there any learnings or insights that you can share with people that they can avoid making the same mistake again or just fast track their, their adoption of purpose in their work? Well, I mean, you know, uh, the, over 50 years, the, I mean, over the last five days, there's at least a half a dozen things I wish I'd done differently. So uh, it doesn't, it's not hard for me to find gaps in our experience that, um, uh, I would change. I, I think um, I could say a few. I, I think um, our movement put communication uh, as a support dimension of the mission. And I actually think it is the mission. So I wish we had done more work at the front end, particularly of the digital revolution, to push the stories of our athletes and push the voices of our athletes to the front of the line, because I think they have so much to share. So we're still trying to catch up there. And more broadly, I think now, uh, you know, we, we, we boast, uh, you know, almost 6 million athletes and partners, but we could have 60 million if we had the digital tools, if we could coach online, if we could create virtual uh, experiences for uh, mothers with very young children, uh, play experiences, you know, early sport development experiences. So we need a digital uh, a whole digital suite that would complement our traditional uh, physical, you know, face-to-face uh, -face model. Uh, I think, um, you know, we've done a lot with the volunteer movement, which I mentioned. Uh, I don't know that we've managed our volunteers as well as we should have. Um, and I think we're still in some ways lagging in, in, the, in the capacity to manage, retain, sustain, 
uh, and uh, and mobilize our volunteers. I, I like to say we, we, we bring millions and millions of people into the Special Olympics movement, but we allow many too many of them leak out, not because they want to leak out, but because we don't retain them, we can't hold them, we don't manage them quite right. Um, I would say, you know, if you're trying to go global, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, we're in over, well, we're in 190 countries now. Uh, in some ways, I think um, we never really had the strength. We haven't yet had the strength, the, uh, the confidence to ask for the kind of financial support we need in uh, almost 60 of our countries. We have no paid staff, zero. Everybody's a volunteer. Now, that's unreal. That's, that's crazy. You can't run this movement, an early childhood program, a health program, a leadership development program, a multi-sport uh, program, a, a coaches development program, all these things which are part of the Special Olympics movement today, you can't run that with only volunteers for a whole nation. So uh, we've got to get better at telling our story. We've got to get better at telling it in new models. We've got to get better at managing our people. And we've got to get better at asking for financial resources. I think still sometimes we think to ourselves, well, no one's going to care about this or people aren't going to want to support us. So why do we even bother asking? Um, I think we've got to develop a little more confidence that, um, that people should be lucky to be able to right. give to this movement uh, rather than burdened by it. And uh, maybe when we do that, we'll get more of the financial power that uh, can help us grow. Uh, yeah. When I look at the money you know, spent on the Olympics, which I think is just, um, you know, I don't begrudge it at all, but the billions, tens and tens of billions of dollars, um, spent on single events uh it, it's great but uh you know for for just one of those buildings we could fund this whole movement for years uh yep. and so we just got to get we, we've got to get better at telling that story so that people see this as just as valuable an investment as the other and uh, again i don't begrudge the other organizations their success i just wish we had more of it <laughs> well well i think you're in a you're in a great spot to to do that now because you know as the world changes and corporations um, change the things that they value um, I think the Special Olympics is going to be right up there um, so, I hope so I would say tighten, tighten your seatbelts because you're gonna you're gonna be you're gonna be in for a fun <laughs> we're ride we're doing our forward, best coming forward so just to close off Tim um, time to dream a little bit um, 2030 you know 2068 100 years time short-term long-term hopes, visions for Special Olympics? We're, we're, well, we're I, this hope, conversation. I mean, I have, a, I, I have a very concrete one. I hope, uh, as I said a little bit earlier, I alluded to, I hope every school in the world will have uh, not just a boys or a young uh, men's program and a young women's program, but I hope every school in the world will have a Special Olympics unified sports program. Uh, every sport club serving children. I think, I hope someday you can get on a bus and you meet someone from Rio de Janeiro or you meet someone from Paris or you meet someone from Cairo or you meet someone from New York City and uh, you can ask them, oh, you, you, what did, what did, when did you play on the Special Olympics team in your community? And it would just be an ordinary thing. Children will look back on this time as a time when uh, Special Olympics was a small program at the time. And they'll ask their parents, how did you let that happen? How did you let schools, uh, how did you let kids grow up without the participation of children with, with intellectual disabilities? Mom, dad, the same way we, it, it, my kids ask me now, when you were a kid, your high school didn't have a girls team. How did you let that happen? Right. Uh, they can't believe it. They can't believe it. 
it's just shocking. Now, I hope that same thing happens when it comes to uh, our brothers and sisters with intellectual disabilities. Well, that's. Uh, uh, I hope that we can close the gap on healthcare. I mean, I think this is something we've taken on in a big way to bring medical supports and training to our athletes. Uh, I hope we have a telemedicine community in the future that can provide state-of-the-art care to a child with Down syndrome, whether she's born in Boston, Massachusetts, in the center of five hospitals, or whether she's born in the center of the Amazon where there's no hospitals. Um, and, uh, and I hope that the digital technologies will be used to bring the kind of expert supports in uh, healthcare, in physical development and fitness and nutrition to moms and dads all over the world. So there won't be any longer this kind of ignorance that leads to so much discrimination. Um, and I hope that, uh, I hope that there will be a faculty uh, around the world uh, that teaches the values of inclusion, that teaches the lessons of inclusion. I hope that faculty is people with intellectual disabilities. Uh, we're experimenting with a couple of, places and you know these uh, higher ed places they think of professors as with PhDs and advanced degrees and that's all good I, I, I love those people and I, we value their support but there's another kind of wisdom um, and it's the wisdom of relationship it's the wisdom of humility it's the wisdom of gentleness it's the wisdom of uh, prioritizing uh, kindness over uh, uh, advantage and aggression uh, I think we need a whole new way of thinking about who understands what matters most. And I'm afraid it won't always be uh, the people with the most advanced degrees. It may, in fact, be people with uh, the most experience on the margins, the most experience outside the circle of belonging, those who have been most excluded who will be able to teach us how to finally learn to include. So I hope we have a whole revolution in the way in which we think about uh, teaching and the teachers among us. If we get close to those things, uh, universal access, uh, every child involved, uh, decency in healthcare, uh, new ways of seeing leadership, uh, uh, then I think at 100, we'll be able to celebrate rightfully. Well, that's a great spot to end off on. Tim, thank you so much uh, for sharing your wisdom with us and your experience. Um, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to this edition of Legacy Sport Live, the companion podcast series to our new book, Legacy Sport, how to win at the business of sport in the age of social good. Please visit our website at www.legacysport.org to order your copy of the book and join our growing community of sports business professionals committed to doing good while doing well through sport.